Thank you, Tim. If you haven't had the opportunity to turn there already, let's look at John together this morning. Uh, If you don't have your own Bible, there should be one on a chair near you. I think it's on page 833, the Gospel of John, chapter 1 there, that we're going to be looking at this morning. Uh, This week has uh, brought uh, a lot of different feelings uh, into my life. I've had some great moments with my family, uh, camping, uh, had some cold moments, uh, freezing. Uh, But we've had, uh, at the same time, uh, a heartbreaking situation, uh, one that was close to me and close to several others this week, uh, and that is uh, a dear friend of mine happened to be on a trip to, uh, to Texas from Memphis to go and visit a church planting situation and uh, some pastors that they had sent out. And with four other brothers and pastors from this church were traveling to Texas on a small little airplane and ended up crashing between Houston and San Antonio. And all but one of them uh, died. This one, my, my dear friend, Kenan, was the only one that survived this. And so I got a text message. I got a text with a headline, four pastors from Memphis die in a plane crash, not knowing anything else but that, and just began reading it. And it was just about to make our plates at dinner, and all of a sudden my heart just dropped, and Joy was like, are you okay? What's, what's wrong? What's happening? I was like, I, I don't know. I got I couldn't scan the news article fast enough to see who, who had died. Had my one pastor friend from Memphis passed away, and lo and behold, find out that he was the only survivor in critical condition uh, in that plane wreck. And, and so here you have this church grieving these individual families, these four wives and their children and even grandchildren, some of them, grieving over the loss of their husband, their father, their grandfather, um, but, and then another wife um, struggling to be able to get to her husband, to care for her husband with his five boys. Uh, and then you have this church grieving over the loss of four of their pastors and, and asking the question, why? Why is this happening? Why is this going on? And I bring that up simply because it was this brother that probably taught me more about uh, what John is trying to communicate in this passage than anybody else. Uh, Graham and I had even talked about him uh, that the day before this, this happened and, and how influential he was in my life regarding giving me a grand view of God's kingdom and the worthiness of Jesus Christ to follow Him and to invite others to follow Him, to make disciples of all nations. Uh, And and so to see Him go through this and to see these other pastors uh, and their families experience the death, uh, uh, their church to experience this kind of loss uh, is just another reminder. Our days are numbered. We are not guaranteed... uh, one extra day in this life. We ought to spend every day that the Lord has given us seeking after Him, following after Him, inviting others to follow after Him as well, for He alone is worthy of it. Uh, I hope that uh, my 
uh, time in the Word, our time in the Word weekly aims to, to show you that, that He is worthy. It was just uh, a, a great thing that the Apostle John is bringing out in these early chapter, in this early chapter, these early chapters of John, the worthiness of Jesus Christ. That's what we looked at last week. Not only was John the Baptist a worthy witness to Jesus, Jesus alone was a worthy Savior. And I hope that you will see, whether you have today to live and tomorrow to die, or whether you have the next decade or three or four decades ahead of you to live, that we would live each and every one of them following hard, fast after Jesus Christ, for He alone is worthy. And that we would spend the rest of our days that the Lord has given us inviting others to follow Him, as we see so well described in the narrative before us this morning. If you're taking notes uh, this morning, that's what I hope you leave with. You, you leave with the idea that Jesus is worthy of us following Him and inviting others to follow too. That Jesus is worthy of us following, and, and that might mean a host of different things. That might mean confessing sin and repenting from sin and turning towards Christ in faith. That might mean leaving friendships behind. That might mean um, giving up certain things in this life so that others can hear the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ that you've heard. That might mean giving up a job or giving up vacation time at least to help the gospel resound to, to the nations that they uh, might hear. But not only is he worth us following, he's worth inviting others to follow. Your coworker, your family member, uh, uh, a neighbor of yours, um, someone that you meet throughout the week, he's absolutely 100% worthy. And as we noted that in, in one sense last week, especially in verses 29 through 34, what we're then going to see in our passages this, this morning is uh, several different individuals' response to the worthiness of Jesus. We're going to see uh, certain responses in action. We're going to see certain responses in word uh, that, that certain individuals have to who Jesus is and what He had come to do. And so if you're taking notes again with me, note, note this first section in verse 35 through 42, two disciples and a brother. I want you to see what these two disciples and this brother's response was to the worthiness of Jesus Christ. In verse 35, we see another next day. Uh, we've seen one of these back in verse 29. Uh, that next day was the day after John was questioned by the religious leaders in 19 through 28. Uh, the next day there in verse 29 was when John the Baptist saw Jesus coming and he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We talked about what, what that really means. Well, here it is the very next day and again, and John was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and again he said, Behold the Lamb of God. 
the same thing that he had said the day previous and and gave a little bit more of what that meant, that he alone is the one that takes away the sin of the world. Here, John again points out to two of his own disciples, behold, the Lamb of God there before them. And look at their response. Look at their response in verse 37. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following, and he said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? I paused there for a second because I wanted to get all the way through verse 38 because when we read their response to Jesus' question of what are you seeking, and we see that they respond saying, Rabbi, John helps us. He helps us in giving us a, a parenthetical description of uh, something that we're less aware of, at least, than they were at that time. Now, some of us have grown up in church, and we know a little bit more of what the rabbi-discipleship relationship really means and, and looks like, but John was at least aware that some of his readers would be unaware of what in the world a rabbi is. And so he explains that a rabbi to John's readers, the apostles' readers, was a, a teacher in a sense. Uh, and, and even more than just a teacher in our school system would look like, of uh, one that you are assigned a teacher and you have to go and you have a classroom setting and then you leave, though that teacher-student relationship has aspects of it that are in this relationship. But this was one in which uh, a rabbi in, in the Jewish culture uh, would have been a well-studied, well-prepared, well-seasoned teacher, and he would take young boys, maybe around the age of 13, and invite them to be his apprentices, to follow him for a certain period of time and begin to teach them all of uh, that he can regarding the Old Testament and, and what they're looking forward to in the coming Messiah and how to understand the Scriptures and live out the Scriptures. And this was a serious relationship, one in which you, you would leave your home and go and spend time with this teacher, maybe even uh, living with this teacher, being with this, this teacher. Uh, maybe even like a boarding school in, in some sense where you're spending significant amount of time with them. And this is the type of relationship that John the Baptist had with his disciples. John the Baptist was a rabbi. He himself was a, a teacher. He himself had disciples and students who came out with him to the Jordan River to baptize, who were heard every one of his sermons, like my kids. <laughs> they saw him uh, baptizing individuals. He saw people, uh, he saw John calling people to repent and believe. He saw, uh, they saw his outrageous behavior and attire. They saw all of that, and it impacted them. They wanted to follow in his footsteps, themselves calling people to repent and believe. But on that day when their disciple, the mentor that they looked up to, much like I looked up to my disciple maker, Kenan, in that relationship for a season of my life, this disciple maker, as any good disciple maker would, 
said, behold the Lamb of God. A good disciple maker like John the Baptist was not going to gain followers just for his own benefit and for his own sake, but was going to gain followers so that he could point them to the Lord. And specifically in this situation, point them to Jesus Christ who is there on the shore of the Jordan River. John the Baptist was a faithful disciple maker, taking his own disciples who had given up so much to follow him and his disciples whom had spent years with possibly and was now saying, here's an opportunity to follow the one that I have been preparing the way for. Here is an opportunity for you to leave me behind and to go and follow the only Lamb of God. There's plenty of other rabbis, but this is the Lamb of God. And I imagine there were other conversations that these disciples overheard. Obviously, the one that we read last week uh, that was the previous day, they experienced that. So when John says again, behold the Lamb of God, these disciples you know, in one quick moment say, thank you. And they go and they run to Jesus and they begin following uh, after him. I I read a story, it's told often uh, uh, regarding some Americans who in the 1800s wanted to go to England to hear some of the most famous preachers in England. And upon traveling to England, they went to one church in which there were three to 4,000 people in the 1800s gathering under this, this preacher. And when they got done with that service, they said, that is the greatest preacher and that was the greatest sermon uh, I ever heard. Uh, they continued traveling around England to go to another church the next weekend. And this happened to be Charles Spurgeon's church at the Metropolitan uh, tabernacle. And after hearing Charles Spurgeon preach, who's known to us as the, the prince of preachers, uh, it was not the preacher they were talking about afterwards. When they left that church and they left that sermon, they did not say, what a preacher, what a sermon. They said, what a Savior we have in Jesus Christ. Because Charles Spurgeon, like John the Baptist, like any good disciple maker, is going to point their disciples to the one who is greater, the Lord Himself, Jesus Christ. And so, Christian church, when we are sent out uh, week by week to be the church in the world, it is not your job to gain a follower or to gain a disciple. It is your job to be sent out to encourage people to follow you as you follow Jesus. To, imit- to say to people, imitate me so long as I am imitating Christ. And to spend your life pointing them to this worthy Savior, Jesus. And note the, the progress that these d- disciples, first of John the Baptist and now of Jesus, are going to go through. One of beholding and seeing uh, and then uh, again, now following, but even more than following, uh, a remaining and, and, and abiding, a going even beyond that, inviting others to come and see, to follow, and to remain and abide as well. You'll see the progression in both of these stories of these disciples, but what you're also going to see is, is this increasing awareness 
of the worthiness of Jesus. Note John has already recognized the worthiness of Jesus in calling Him the Lamb of God. But these disciples of John, when they come to Jesus, they simply here call Him Rabbi. Rabbi. But just watch as Jesus unfolds for them who He really is and as they come to a greater awareness of this in in their own lives. And so, as they're following... Jesus asks in verse 38, what are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying and they stayed with him that day for it was about the 10th hour. And Jesus was just walking alongside. It was John the Baptist who points his disciples to the Lamb of God. They begin following after, and Jesus, aware of his surroundings, notice a couple uh, young bucks uh, following after him uh, close by, and he questions them, what, what, what are you seeking? What are you looking for as you're following me? And, and they ask him a question of, where are you staying? We want to get some time with you. Where are you staying? Where are you abiding? And there is a repetition here in the Greek of this word abiding in, which I think the Apostle John is using to show us uh, a theme throughout the rest of his gospel, especially when you get to John chapter 15 and Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Abide in me and you will bear much fruit. This idea of uh, coming and seeing Jesus. And not just coming and seeing Jesus, but when you've seen who Jesus really is, you're willing to leave anything else behind and follow after Him. And you you don't just want to follow from a distance. You want to abide with, to remain with Jesus in those moments. Trying to uh, learn more and more of who He is. To see the, the depths of His worthiness and to be like Him uh, in every way possible. And so he tells them to come with Him. He invites them to come and see where He's staying, for it was later in the day. In verse 40, it says, one of the two who heard John speak, that is, John the Baptist, and followed Jesus, was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. Wouldn't you love to be known even though you were one of the first to follow Jesus, uh, even before uh, Peter, the well-known disciple and apostle, you were following Jesus before Peter, and yet you're known as Peter's brother. This is how my dad and I have uh, gone at different seasons and in different groups, uh, depending on when and where it is. Sometimes my dad is known as Uh, Brian's son, and uh, sometimes I'm known as Rob. uh, Did I say that right? No? Okay. So there you see the confusion in it. Uh, Sometimes I'm known as Robert's son, and sometimes he's known as Brian's dad. It just depends on which group you're in. And there will come a day when hopefully I'll be in my own kid's sphere of influence, and I'm going to be known as their dad. Um... They're the the key one in that. Well, 
The Apostle John, in writing this gospel, knows that the audience whom he's writing to probably knows Peter more than they know Andrew, uh, even though Andrew was the first to follow. Uh, the other disciple, it not- notice that it says one of the two who heard John speak, that is John the Baptist, and followed Jesus was Andrew. We don't specifically learn who the other one is, but in reading the rest of the Gospel of John, we become made aware that the writer of the Gospel of John, the Apostle John, doesn't want to name himself. And so he often uh, mentions himself without mentioning himself. Uh, that, uh, that there were two, but one of them was Andrew, hinting at the fact that he is likely the other one who was with Andrew at that time, leaving John the Baptist behind and beginning to follow after Jesus. And so here, these two disciples, the Apostle John and the Apostle Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, are following after Jesus. Uh, They've come to see Jesus. They're following after Jesus. They're wanting to remain and abide with Jesus. And, And after doing so, for some amount of time, in verse 41, it says that he first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah. And here again, the Apostle John in writing this Gospel gives us a parenthesis because John knows that some of his readers are not going to understand what Messiah really means. Uh, And so he translates that for them, which means Christ. And, And to the Greek reader at that time, they would have known this to be the Anointed One. Uh, they probably wouldn't have understood it in all of the ways that a, a Jew um, waiting for the first advent of Christ, for the coming of the Messiah, would have understood, but they at least knew that He was the anointed one. And, and even that idea of anointed one is going to be developed in the Gospel of John, that He's the anointed prophet of old, as we noted from last week, uh, a couple weeks ago. Uh, He's the anointed priest to come, not only to offer a sacrifice, but to become a sacrifice, to become the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's going to come to become the anointed king, a a greater king than even King David who was anointed in the Old Testament um, to, to be the king of Israel. Jesus is the anointed one, and Andrew goes and finds his brother, uh, and says, we've found the Messiah. we found the Christ. We've found the Anointed One, the One we've been waiting for, the, the One set apart in His anointing as prophet, priest, and king. We've found Him. And He brought Him to Jesus. He brought His brother Peter to Jesus. And Jesus looked at him and said, so you are Simon, the son of John. This is how... The man that we know as the Apostle Peter was known before his interaction with Jesus. Before he left and came and saw and followed and abided with Jesus. He was known as Simon, the son of John, Andrew's brother. But Jesus looks at him and says, you shall be called Cephas. And there again, we see another parenthetical statement of 
the Apostle John explaining to those who were reading that don't speak Aramaic that Cephas means Peter, Petros, which would mean rock. And you could read in some of the other gospel accounts and Mark chapter 8 specifically, what's some of the meaning behind Jesus naming Peter the rock really meant. That on Peter's confession that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God, uh, that, that that confession was the rock on which the Apostle Peter's life was based on. The rock on which his belief was founded in. It was the rock on which the church would be founded on later on. And Peter was just a little pebble in the, the great foundation of the apostles of which Jesus Himself is the chief cornerstone. And so you see that even these disciples who saw a great worthiness in the witness of John the Baptist who was pointing to an even greater, uh, one who was even more worthy, Jesus Christ Himself, because of, his, uh, of who He was, it's both God and man, the worthiness of Him as their Savior, John the Baptist points his disciples to follow this Jesus. They follow Him, they see Him, they abide with Him for a short time and, and have to even leave to go and invite his brother to come and follow, to come and see, to come and follow, to come and abide. Christian, is this how we feel towards our worthy Savior, Jesus Christ? That we have to leave what we're doing at a time, even being in the presence of Jesus, to go and invite others to follow Jesus as well, to send someone a text, to send someone a scripture that they might consider who Jesus is, that we might leave behind our own plans for that lunch, to have lunch with another, to be able to share with them the worthiness of Jesus Christ. Is, is, is this how we feel about Jesus? That we're so in awe of who He is and what He's done for us that we would be willing to leave behind um, spending some special moments with even Jesus to go and invite others to, to follow Him. This is important. This is important for us to consider. Not only is Jesus worth us following, but He's worth us inviting others to follow too. And to come and see who He is and the claims that He's made and who the Gospels present Him to be. To consider what it would mean to leave and to follow after Him and to abide with Him all the days of His life. For in the other Gospels, the Gospel of Matthew and of Mark and of Luke, Jesus talks about what it means to follow Him. If any would follow after Me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow Me. Being willing to lay all things aside to be able to follow closely after Jesus. This is the type of following that Jesus demands because of the worthiness uh, of which he uh, has in and of himself. Just a few chapters later, Jesus, in a, in a time when Jesus makes some hard statements uh, to understand, but yet, yet some hard statements 
to even accept. Um, many, the Bible says in John chapter 6, many of his disciples, many of his followers at that time, they get up and they leave. They were willing to follow Jesus so long as it was enjoyable, so long as it was easy, so long as it was profitable for them. But when things got uncomfortable, when, when things got hard, when Jesus was making demands of them and following after him that were more than they bargained for, they left. They were unwilling to remain and abide. Jesus even questions some of his own followers, his, some of his closest followers after they left him. In John 6, verse 66 or 67, Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Are you done remaining? Are you done abiding? You've been following me up to this point. Am I worthy enough for you to remain and abide even through these hard times? And Simon Peter, this one whom Andrew went to find and invited to come and see, invited to come and follow, invited to come and remain and abide, Simon Peter opens his mouth in verse 68 and answered, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Where else are we going to go? There's no other rabbi equal to you. There's, there's no other person worth following more than you. You alone are worthy. You're the Holy One of God. There's not another. You're the Holy One of God. Peter's willing to remain. Peter came to understand. Uh, Peter came to follow because his brother came and found him. Came and found him and told him, we have found the Messiah. This is how you too, Christian, came into the fold of Christ. Because someone, came, someone who had found Jesus, or, or better yet, been found by Jesus, and came to find Jesus themselves, came and found you and shared with you the worthiness of Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ, the Holy One of God, died in your place to offer you forgiveness of your sins. That Jesus Christ was buried and rose from the dead, conquering sin and death. God accepting His sacrifice on the cross that day so that you wouldn't have to be punished for your sin. Someone came and shared this good news of forgiveness and of salvation with you so that you too would have the invitation to come and see Jesus, to follow Jesus, to remain with Jesus. And so far as today goes, you've followed and remained with Him up to this point. And it's us who are sent out by Jesus Himself and each week as a church to go and be the church in the world to make disciples of all nations, inviting others to come and see, to come and follow Jesus, to come and remain with Jesus, for He alone is worthy. Peter came to realize that because his brother came and invited him to follow as well. Well, that's what happened on that day, but there's another day 
that follows in verse 43. And I'm calling this one a neighbor and an Israelite. We might find that, as in the previous story, certain disciples, um, certain religious people, uh, that is, uh, and even a brother are potential people whom we might need to invite. Well, here we have one who's a neighbor from the same town, as well as an Israelite, another religious person uh, that, that is not only coming to see who Jesus is, being found by Jesus and following Jesus himself, uh, but also inviting others to follow Jesus. Verse 43, we see that the next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee, and I may just note as another possibility, something that I learned even this week, that, that the word Jesus is not in that verse, but instead it says the next day he decided to go to Galilee. It could even be that Andrew is still going out and inviting others to follow Jesus, but, but some have... Uh, the translators of the ESV have inferred here that it's, it's Jesus who is inviting them to truly follow Him, not just Andrew saying, follow me and I'll take you uh, to the Messiah, the Christ whom uh, we have found. And so if it is Jesus, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. And we remember from chapter 1, verse 28, that He was in Bethany across the Jordan, but now he's coming to go to Galilee, intentionally uh, deciding to go to Galilee, and there he found Philip. He found Philip, and he said to him, follow me. Notice the earlier scripture, the earlier story, it was uh, John the Baptist who pointed out Jesus, and they had found Jesus, but here it's Philip who's been found by Jesus. Not that Philip was out looking for him, but that Jesus decided to go to Galilee and found Philip himself. And isn't this true of so many of our stories? When we were not seeking, when we were not searching, when we were not aiming to find Jesus, our worthy Savior, we were found by Him in the depths of our own sin and in depravity and loneliness and frustration and with a lack of hope. Uh, we, he, we were found by Him. It says that Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. And here's where I get the idea of Philip being a neighbor. So if it was Andrew who was the he that was go, going to Galilee, the one who found Philip, he went and found him because he was a neighbor. He was a, a friend of his. He was an acquaintance of his, maybe even a friend of his from his own town. He went to his very own town to, to find him. Nevertheless, either way, whether it's Jesus or Andrew, there's intentionality behind the, the seeking of Jesus and or Andrew, there's intentionality by the, the finding. There's intentionality by the invitation uh, of engaging a neighbor. In verse 45, it says that Philip then found Nathanael. Uh, Nathanael is 
probably the Bartholomew from Matthew, Mark, and Luke, though here he's uh, named Nathaniel for Philip and Bartholomew, or Philip and Nathaniel always go together. And Philip found him, and he said to him, We have found him, of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Philip knew that Nathanael had an Israelite background. He had an understanding of the Old Testament Scriptures. And Philip goes to Nathanael and says, We have found the one that Moses was writing about. We found the one that Moses wrote about in the law. We found the one that the prophets were telling us was coming one day to make all the wrong things right. The one who would come to rescue us from our sin. The one whom God promised would come from the very beginning. G- uh, Philip here is describing a, a great Jesus-centered understanding of the Old Testament. One in which Jesus Himself has and describes in Luke 24 where Jesus on the road to Emmaus told those disciples that it was He who all the Old Testament was pointing to. And Philip has this, has this new awareness that Jesus is the one whom Moses and the prophets were writing about. Jesus specifically, uh, not of Bethsaida or even specifically Galilee, but he says Jesus of Nazareth the son of Joseph, to which Nathanael responds in verse 46 saying, can anything good come out of Nazareth? This Galilean uh, had a point of view that looked down on people from Nazareth, not expecting anything good to come from Nazareth. And it's interesting here that Jesus is not described as Jesus of Bethlehem, from which we know He was born, but Jesus of Nazareth. And and there's something going on here in Nathanael's own heart and mind, having a certain understanding of and certain uh, recollection of people from Nazareth to be like this. Can anything good come out of it? And Philip and Jesus Himself show that to be contradictory to the, tr- to the truth. Philip said to him, come and see. And I love that invitation there because you too might find yourself like Philip going to a friend, an acquaintance, a family member, and, and saying to them, I've found hope in the only Savior that's out there. And them saying, can, can anything really good come from following Jesus? Can anything really good come from you attending church on Sunday mornings? Can anything really good? And, and look at what Philip's response was to this doubting, this questioning of this, uh, this Israelite. He said, just come and see. Just come and see for yourself. Come and, come and see what an invitation that we might offer to those whom we interact with. Well, come and see with me. Read the Gospel of John with me as we as a church have challenged each and every one of us to read the Gospel of John with an unbeliever this year, to begin even now praying for God to bring someone into our life that would be willing to do that. Maybe you 
uh, invite someone this week or this month to do that with you, and they just doubt. They're like, I, I just can't see anything good coming from me doing that. I just, why, why would I do that? And for us to just kindly, lovingly say, come and see. Just come and see. And at the end, you can make your judgment on that, hoping that through that process, they would see who Jesus really is and find Him, that He alone is uh, our worthy Savior. And so he, he, he invites him, come and see. And so in verse 47, Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him, and he said to him, Behold an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. In whom there is no deceit. Now Jesus, when he looks at Nathanael, this Israelite, is not saying that Nathanael is without sin without reason to, to be blamed, that he would be able to stand before God holy and, and righteous. He's not saying that. He's saying uh, for Nathaniel's sake, uh, something that points us back to our Old Testament, something that, that points us back uh, to, to earlier stories that the Apostle John and Jesus are going to bring up in a moment, in fact, when, when he says that he is without deceit, and as we read the rest of this passage and see a reference to uh, Jacob from the Old Testament, we can go back and read the story of Jacob and find, in fact, that he was pretty deceitful. He was a cheater. He cheated his brother out of his birthright and blessing deceived his father uh, when stealing that birthright and blessing. And so when Jesus looks at him and says to this Israelite, um, there's no deceit in you, he's saying you're not like Jacob, even like Jacob. But consider Jacob for a second as Jesus begins to to go on in that story. Keep that aspect of Jacob's life in your mind as we see this story unfold with this good Israelite who knows his Old Testament Scriptures well. Behold an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Nathaniel, you're, you're not like Jacob. You haven't stolen a blessing or a birthright. And Nathaniel said to him, How do you know me? How do you know, Jesus, that I'm not deceitful? How do you know that I'm not a cheater like our father Jacob in the Old Testament? And Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Before Philip called me, called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Now, I, am not, I have no clue what this means. I have no clue what was happening under the fig tree. I don't even know where the fig tree was or when this actually happened, but that's really not the point. Nathaniel does. He knows what was happening at that fig tree. He knew, knows that Jesus saw him in that moment. And this is what his response to Jesus saying that was. He answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the king of Israel. I mean, with that one statement, 
everything switched from this doubting Israelite for him to become a willing follower, for him to become a worshiper in that moment of Jesus. When he was seen, when he, was, when he realized that he had been seen by Jesus, known by Jesus in that moment, uh, fully known, uh, in the midst of his sin and in the midst of his righteousness. He was fully known in that moment, and he came to realize that Jesus was the Son of God. You were the King of Israel. For no one else could have known what Jesus just revealed in that moment. None of us still know what Jesus revealed in that moment. But isn't that how most of us came to follow Jesus Christ? that when we came to realize that Jesus knows us in the depths of our sin, that He still loves us and willingly died for us, that we come away from that moment saying, truly you are the Son of God. Only you are worthy of our worship. You alone are the King of Israel. And Jesus answers him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? And listen to what Jesus says. You will see greater things than these. Church, if that sounds familiar from something we brought up several weeks ago, it's because that sounds much like the words of Thomas, another doubter, at the end of the Gospel of John, who wouldn't believe that Jesus had rose from the dead until he saw him, until he was able to touch his hands and his feet and his side where the nails pierced him to the cross and where the spear pierced his side. Thomas wouldn't believe until he saw. So when Jesus appeared before him, he believed in that moment, just like Nathaniel did here. And Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen? And Jesus would go on to say in John chapter 20, Blessed are those who have not seen and yet still have believed. And that's true not only uh, of those who would live after these apostles and disciples uh, in the first century, but it's true of us as well. Blessed are those who have not seen the resurrected Jesus. And blessed are those who have believed in Jesus even though we have not had an experience like this with Jesus where Jesus has... Uh, in, right before us, audibly told us something that happened in, our, in the past of our life. Yet we have come to see with fresh eyes who Jesus is, that He is the Holy One of God, the Son of God, the King of Israel, the Anointed One, the Rabbi of all rabbis who died on the cross and rose from the dead, and He's worthy of us following Him. Jesus says, if you think that was great. And if you've believed because of what I've told you, know this, you will see even greater things than these. Greater things, I think, speaking to what's about to be unveiled in chapter 2 in some of the signs, the first sign of Jesus in the wedding at Cana. But, but Jesus specifically mentions in verse 51, and He said to him, truly, Truly, I say to you, emphasizing what he's about to say. And not only is he saying this to Nathaniel, 
Not only is he really saying this to Nathaniel and Philip, but probably to a group of disciples that are there, for the you is plural there. He said, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Truly, I truly, 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 I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now, this is the reference I mentioned a minute ago that takes us back to our Old Testament in the story of Jacob. And Jacob, a good uh, Nathaniel, a good Israelite who knew his Old Testament, the writings of Moses and the prophets well, he would have known this story. He would have known the story of that deceitful, cheating Jacob who cheated his brother and his father. Um, travel away from his brother and his father to go find a wife among his uncle's family, Laban's family. And on the way there, he lays his head down on a rock and he sees a dream. And in that dream, he sees a ladder extending up into heaven and he sees the angels ascending and descending on this ladder. And he sees a vision of what it means to have access to God. And it's there that he names that place Bethel, the house of God, the place where uh, the people of Israel in the future would have access to God, to come to worship God in that place of Bethel. But Jesus is is saying, you're going to see something greater than that deceitful, cheating Jacob even saw back in the day of this place where the people could come to worship. You're going to see that I am the greater ladder, that I'm the greater house of God, for I am God in and of myself. It is me on whom the angels of God ascend and descend. It is me, Jesus says, who gives access to the Lord himself. I'm the only way, the only truth, and the only life that is available is what Jesus will say later in John 14, 26. Jesus looks at Nathanael and says, you think that's great. You, you think I'm worthy of you following because I know something that happened in your past? You're going to see that I am the greater ladder of Jacob on which the people of God have access to God. For I am God, and I have come to give my life on the cross. And not only am I going to die, but God is going to accept my sacrifice on the cross as the Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world so that all who come and see and all who repent and believe and all who follow after me and remain and abide with me will have eternal life. And they'll get to climb up that ladder who is Jesus Christ and spend eternity with God forever in the new heavens and the new earth. Jesus is highlighting the fact that He is the greater Jacob. He is the greater ladder. And that Nathaniel and Philip and all of these disciples and all who would come and see and follow after Jesus are going to see even greater things than those that had been on display there. What about you? Have you come to see who Jesus is? 
Maybe you've come here on the invitation of a friend. Maybe you've come here just to consider what this church about. Maybe you've come again because week after week you want to come and see who Jesus is. You want to, like these disciples, come into a greater awareness every Sunday morning to, to learn more of who Jesus is. Maybe you've come and you've realized that He alone is worthy of following after. That there's no other rabbi that this world will offer us that's worthy of us following like this. That there's no other Savior that's given Himself as the sacrifice to appease God's wrath and to make us right before God. Maybe you've come to realize that and you realize that He alone is worthy of you following Him. Let me encourage you that the way to follow Jesus is to do exactly what Jesus says, and that is to repent of your sins and to believe in Him, in Him alone, so that you can experience the forgiveness of your sins and remain with and abide with Jesus. To spend the rest of your days, however many they are, for they are numbered, as we described earlier. So either today, having come and seen who Jesus is, why would you not, this day that you are given, choose to follow Jesus, repenting of your sins and believing in Him? And Christian, having come and seen who Jesus is and seen Him as your worthy Savior, do you not also see as these disciples saw, that He's worthy of you following Him in every aspect of your life. He alone is worthy of you following Him. And if that's the case, then in what ways this week do you need to stop following the ways of the world, following the people of the world, and follow after Christ even more closely? For He alone is worthy. Let us be thankful for the day that we've been given. For we may get in our cars or get on an airplane later this week and not live to tell about it. Or maybe we will live to tell about it. And I'm sure it will spur us on to live even more so for His name's sake. For He's the only one worth following after. Let's pray. Father, would You help us See the worthiness of your Son, Jesus Christ, this morning in ways that we haven't before. Lord, if there is one who has come this morning, maybe most of the people in this room would consider them as a Christian, a follower of Christ, one who has repented of their sins and believed and yet that person in the depths of their heart know, knows that they've never truly surrendered to you. They've gone through the motions of doing a bunch of religious things, maybe even like Nathaniel, a good Israelite. They've done a lot of good Christian things, but they know in the depths of their heart they have yet to truly follow after you and to remain and abide in you, repenting of their sins and trusting Christ alone for salvation. Lord, I pray that they too would this day choose to follow you. 
Lord, and for those of us who, by your grace, uh, have been found by you and are following after you, might we leave this place desiring to follow you even more closely, to abide with you more closely, to remain with you more closely. Lord, for you are worthy. Our jobs can't offer you, uh, offer us what you offer us. Not even our spouses or our, our children, our family can offer us what you offer us. Lord, nothing in this world can offer us what you have offered us, salvation and eternal life. And Lord, I pray that we would live like it. So Lord, help us this morning. Help us to come and see again who you really are, to see that you alone are worthy of us following after you and remaining and abiding with you and in going out from this place to invite others to do the same, to come and see, to follow you, to remain and abide with you. We ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen.